Nick, I feel like we're struggling to stand out on social media. I don't know. I mean, I feel like we don't have really any big design savvy. Yeah, and, and like we just started this thing about a year ago, and it's just we don't have a budget to hire a designer or anyone like a marketing guru or anything like that. I mean, how do we attract new listeners? I feel like we should try this thing called Ripple. What's Ripple? I've never heard of it. Ripple is designed for small businesses, helps you attract new business and engage with existing customers. Mm. We don't have to be great designers. We create professional ads. There's like 200 plus design templates. It automatically shares to all of our social media. You mean like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram? All of it at once. It has recommendations and goal tracking tools. So like, you know, it's not going to make us hit 100,000 people next week. That's amazing. How do we sign up? For a seven-day free trial, visit rippleripl.com slash herd today. That's seven days free. Slash today, right? No. <laughs> All right. It's underlined. Today is underlined. No. No, that's wrong. For your seven-day free trial of Ripple, visit ripple.com, R-I-P-L.com slash herd, H-E-A-R-D, right now. Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Herd is a collaboration between the Hungry Dudes, Nick Drinks, and the Detroit Optimist Society. Each week, we interview industry professionals about issues related to food, beverage, and hospitality. Please take a moment to subscribe to Herd through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcasts. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com, like Herd Podcast on Facebook, and follow at Herd Podcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Herd. Nick, I feel like we're struggling to stand out on social media. I don't know. I mean, I feel like we don't have really any big design savvy. Yeah. And, and like we just started this thing about a year ago and it's just we don't have a budget to hire a designer or anyone like a marketing guru or anything like that. I mean, how do we attract new listeners? I feel like we should try this thing called Ripple. What's Ripple? I've never heard of it. Ripple is designed for small businesses, helps you attract new business and engage with existing customers. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be great designers. We create professional ads. There's like 200 plus design templates. It automatically shares to all of our social media. You mean like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram? All of it at once. It has recommendations and goal tracking tools. So like, you know, it's not going to make us hit 100,000 people next week. That's amazing. How do we sign up? For a seven-day free trial, visit rippleripl.com slash herd today. That's seven days free. Slash today, right? No. <laughs> All right. It's underlined. Today is underlined. No, no, that's wrong. For your seven-day free trial of Ripple, visit ripple.com, R-I-P-L dot com slash herd, H-E-A-R-D, right now. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm and Joe Keen. we're sorry about that. <laughs> Yeah, that ad, you know, it was a good read. I think it was a good read. Right, Nick? Thanks, Ripple. That was great. <laughs> uh, tonight, joined by Jason. 
Hey. Nick. What up? Uh, and we have two special guests tonight. Our first guest is a first-time guest on the show, uh, owner, co-owner of the Royce in Detroit, and the soon-to-be-open Marrow, also in Detroit, Ping Ho. Thank you for being here. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And our first, second-time guest on the show, uh, Ping's sidekick, sidekick for the evening. Her sidekick. <laughs> Liz Martinez from Prime and Proper. Liz, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for, thanks for having me again, guys. <laughs> All right. So, uh, first things first, Nick, you shared a video with us earlier about uh, it was uh, a person kicking open a bottle of beer, which is what we're going to do after the show. Yeah, so uh, stay tuned for that video. She had two bottles of beer. So there's a million ways to open uh, beer bottles without uh, a bottle opener. This one happens to be using the other bottle of beer as the lever to kind of pop open the, the, the beer bottle. So therefore you're hitting, you're taking one bottle of beer, you're putting it under the bottle cap, and you're kicking up that lever to pop open the other bottle. So you need two bottles to do this. I, I didn't even realize that was happening there. I thought she opened both bottles at once. No, she only opened the one. I mean, maybe, but from the way I understand is you open the one bottle, but the way she did it so smoothly, so cleanly, and then just has this little twinkle in her eye at the end, just like, huh, yeah, I did that. Well, that's definitely less cool that it was only one bottle, though. But then yeah. also, how do you open the other bottle after that? Well, mm. so it's kind of like this like circle. Like you got to have one like sacrificial bottle that never gets opened. We're not going to recreate the magic of that video. You realize that, right? Not with three ugly guys. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a video. There was a video last year that went last year that went around with the opening the wine bottle with the shoe. Did you see that? Mm-mm. The guy uh, puts a uh, mm-hmm. wine bottle and you take your shoe. You take your shoe off and you uh, put the wine bottle inside of it. And you so the cork is facing up. Cor- yeah, cork yep. is facing up, and you're uh, you hit it against the wall. A wall yeah. until the basically the the pressure is building up to like pop out the cork. The other one I like is heat. They've actually kind of he- uh, heated up the uh, the cork until the inside yeah, expands that and that pops. You can put a screw in there. You can like put a screw in there and kind of pull it out with pliers. I mean, I'm just going to use my wine key. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who, who, who doesn't have a wine key on them at all times? I mean, have you ever like, not had one and just panicked? Uh, <laughs> or I that's have like one sin. right now. That's so. the number one sin. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but both the wine bottles are open, so yeah. <laughs> All right, so Ping, you uh, you're born in Singapore. That's right. And w- when did you uh, come over to the states? I've been in the states since college, so quite a long time ago. I'm not going to reveal my age, but <laughs> let's just say it was the '90s, late '90s. Okay. And, and so you came over here for college? Is that? Yeah. So I went to school on the East Coast, New England, and it was my first time in the U.S. Um, basically, packed two bags. Got on a plane by myself. Thirty six hours later, I was in in the states. Wow. Yeah, wow. My parents, my grandparents, grandmother waved me goodbye, and you know that was it. H- have you visited Singapore since? Oh, of course, but every probably once a year. It's such a long trip, so I'm actually going back next wait, next week. Next week oh, well, yeah. next two weeks, yeah, for Chinese New Year. Mm, yeah. So um, how does Singapore at all like uh, color your experience of like Detroit or, you know, your experience in the United States in terms of hospitality? Well, I mean, Singapore is a it's a small country, but packed. So imagine it's um, it's got a lot of restaurants. We love our food. So tons of restaurants, bars, high end to low end. Yeah, and definitely, it's uh, it's a lot more vibrant and 
you know, culturally um, diverse, I would say, than many cities in the U.S. So in terms of hospitality, I mean, there are different standards. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of local food where there's not the same type of, you know, restaurant service you get, but there are also a lot of high-end restaurants. But yeah, growing up in Singapore, I think what my key thing was really loving food and loving, you know, going out to eat as well as eating at home, but, you know, really understanding and or getting to know a lot of different cuisines from all over. So not looking at types of food, cuisines, or like cooking styles, what do you think is the biggest difference between like here in Singapore when you look at kind of the, the restaurant industry? I think the, well, the sheer number of restaurants in mm. Singapore per, per capita, right, per person is much bigger. Um, and so there's more choices. More choices, okay. more cuisines. I mean, but you, you know, so diversity, mm-hmm. number of, you know, options to, when you go out to eat, there are a ton of options. Are they small restaurants? A mix. Okay. So lots of big hotel names. I mean, okay. there are a lot of big name chefs like Michelin star chefs mm-hmm. um, that, you know, have gone and, and opened up um, high-end restaurants. But at the same time, the best food is also the local food. Of course. Yeah. Right. And when you when you say high end restaurant, like I I get the the kind of image of like a steakhouse or something like like John George or you know and lots of yeah big big names. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any, like Singapore's like a, 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 like the kind of native food there? Right? Are there high end restaurants serving that food as well, or is it mostly like this kind of international international yeah. kind of mostly international? But then that you know that there's some expensive say Cantonese restaurants mm. that have been famous in Hong Kong and then they open up, you know, a branch in say the Ritz Carlton in in Singapore and it's high-end Chinese food, right? Cantonese food. Yeah. So so tell us how that would differ. We we actually talked about Serena and we think that's one thing that's kind of missing in especially Detroit but some states is that high-end kind of international food. Mm-hmm. Like certainly there's French, there's Italian, but where's that like high-end you know Tell us how that's different, basically. Like when you go into a high-end Singapore place, what do you see there? Just ingredients or? In, so from ingredients, you know, extremely um, fresh um, quality ingredients mm-hmm. to the, you know, like in, if it's Cantonese food, like the abalone, right? Mm-hmm. It's very expensive per pound. Um, you have, so high-end Cantonese is one thing. Japanese food, lots of very pricey, um, super fresh, flown in from, you know, Tokyo that day, right? So it runs the gamut. I mean, it depends on which Asian cuisine you're talking sure. about. But I would say in terms of Chinese, the finer dining options would be Cantonese styles, Shanghainese, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like Japanese kind of has a, a leg up on some of the other Asian for like high end yeah. because you can get some fresh fish and just out of the gate, you're just like, oh, that's $30 for that right. piece of fish. It's flown in from the <laughs> right, you know, right. Suzuki market, right? That very, very same day, yep. right? So interesting. So uh, you come over to the States, you uh, college and you get an MBA in Columbia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're in New York with Warner Music Group and you go from senior director to VP. Uh, and you did your research. I did. <laughs> I did. And, and so the, my question then is, um, so uh, Warner Music Group, obviously, like, so you yeah. are, what does it be to, mean to be VP at Warner Music Group? Uh, what did what was your role there? So I worked for um, the corporate team where we you know directly had a line to the CEO. I mean it was it was 
the music industry was declining for a decade, right? And I joined um, in 2005 when... When I was on Napster. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the music business tried to sue Napster, sure, right? Yeah, when it yeah. should have instead tried to buy Napster, right? right? And so... Thus started the decline, but then it was, you know, trying to claw back up and trying to be smart about digital. So I was part of a team that was trying to innovate and doing deals in digital, mm-hmm. being a few steps ahead of the the rest of the industry. And basically, you know, was part of a team that did the first YouTube deal. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked with a lot of digital service providers and helped to conceive of business models. And the way in which I like to describe it is we helped to define the future of um, you know, consumption of 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 digital entertainment, wow. and define the business models that enable content providers to be paid on platforms like YouTube. What an amazing time to be in there because so much changed. I feel like in the that early two thousands going right. into even now, um, and and you talk about YouTube. I think YouTube actually just announced a deal where you can now use music if you're in the United States. You can use music in your videos. Mm-hmm. Um, that's popular music for no charge. They have like a library oh, really? that you can pull out. Right. Yeah. Which is crazy. All this stuff that's happening like now. I think Facebook just made a change. Did they? As well. Yeah. They made a, a licensing deal of some sort. That's cool. But I it's US before, only. That's the key. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so th- that was exactly the kind of stuff I did. I mean, I talked to these companies for a long time. I, I was, you know, primarily in the forefront of trying to drive innovation and trying to talk to service, you know, digital platforms like Facebook, um, Snapchat, mm-hmm. like, all right. Content is complicated. Yeah. How do you monetize on platforms that are primarily free? So that was my, I mean, I thought, I, I, you know, I spent uh, like, uh, yeah, long <laughs> years thinking about that and coming up with ways in which um, content owners could be paid. Very different from the wine business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about that. So you're, you're, in, you're in New York for about 10 years or whatever. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're obviously taking in a lot of um, like New York's a, like a hotbed for culinary you know, innovation, like it's like the place, you know, right. uh, in the United States. So you're, how were you inspired by New York uh, to, to kind of make the move from music to wine? By, well, yeah, from, I think being in New York, living there, having the options of going out to eat and at some amazing places. I'm also loving wine from my trips. I mean, I, we used to travel a lot for my job, Warner Music, Every year we'll go to Cannes for a big music festival in in January, you know, and just going to, you know, Nice and some of the best restaurants, um, drinking fine wine. I remember having my aha moment with with wine being um, a, you know, a a white burgundy, right? Mm -hmm. Chardonnay. Never thought white wine would be so amazing. And I, you know, was at a Warner Music dinner and um, my boss ordered a bottle and I was I tried it. I was like, wow, that's incredible. Cause I always thought, you know, the most incredible wines were red and just this, mm-hmm. you know, how sublime and delicious, elegant it was, just blew me away. So it was a combination of, yeah, being kind of, you know, having a cosmopolitan upbringing and traveling around and then for my job, as well as being in, in one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world, New York, where every time you, you went out for dinner, we had we were sport for choice. We we could go to you know, the new best restaurant and order off the list and see what what wines there are. So yeah, it, I guess it exposed me and, you know, helped me cultivate what I what I like. And I think that's so perfect. I feel it's like you need that wine that's kind of out of a typical category to like change your mind. 
and be like, wait a second. Because so my my dad is a big into wine. He has a, a great wine cellar. So I always had some good wines when I was growing up. And I've been out. I've been out to eat and done all that stuff. But I think I'd say even white burgundy. Like when you finally have that, you're like, wait a second, burgundy can be white. This is so wild. Like right. having that one that's like out of style, kind of to be like tweak you and be like, there's more to this than just delicious wines. Kind of thing. is that for people that don't know, aka like myself, is that something that is approachable, uh, totally price wise and totally. also like availability for. Somebody that's not a cosmopolitan background, or can how can this per, how can a person have a, the aha moment um, as a novice? Budget aha moment wines. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I mean, it, you, you can find a lot of different um, price range uh, right. for French Chardonnay, um, and certainly you know there's in, in the Macon in particular, you can find something that's you know might be a good entry level way to get into it. But it ranges quite a bit. You can get some pretty expensive ones for sure. sure. But, you know, there's the Greek like, wines we were drinking. I think those are like some uh, aha moments because hmm. we had those when you were on our podcast a couple of months ago. But yeah. price doesn't, necess- d- doesn't necessarily dictate the aha moment is, I guess, what I was just trying to get to. Right. Like, hopefully yeah. is what no. I was. I mean, and at the Royce, we really focus on everyday wines. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe this is a good time segue into since I did bring a Chardonnay, Ooh, not yes, French, please. but. It is made in a very, you know, almost more, when you think about California Chardonnay, people think about, oh, oaky, buttery, you know, lots of big, you know, vanilla mm-hmm. f- flavors. But this one is, um, it's from this very small producer named Cotier. And um, Kevin Law is the proprietor and the winemaker. And Mary Bradley assists him. So she's actually from Michigan. And... It's such a small production wine. Um, they only sell it in California and here because, because of Mary. <laughs> so she came and she was visiting her family plus, you know, and, you know, visiting the market. And we did an event at the Royce. Mm-hmm. She brought a, a few different wines and very beautiful expression of cold climate California wine. So they, they, they get that grapes from, you know, San, Santa Barbara, Santa Cruz, um, San Luis Obispo. That's close to where they're based. And yeah, let's want to try. Hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I guess I can. I guess I can mix glasses. No one's gonna yell at me. <laughs> so th- this wine's available at the Royce. It yes. is. Yep. Um, so give us the uh, the one on one for Royce because I when you guys open I instantly fell in love because again like you said it's everyday wines I mean for the most part yeah. if you find something over twenty dollars I feel like you're hunting a little bit. So. Um, about I would say eighty, over eighty percent of our inventory is under forty forty dollars. Mm-hmm. So more than that, yeah. actually ninety percent of inventory. Um, the sweet spot, most of them would be between twenty to thirty bucks, okay. and there's a lot um, under twenty dollars as well. So your everyday wines, where you don't feel like you're breaking the bank if you go and buy a bottle of wine every day to have something with dinner, right? Um, and these are so we focus on small production, small independent producers um, that you don't commonly find in like Whole Foods or Myers, you know, at, at all, right? Whole Foods has a pretty de- decent selection now, in, you know, in certain categories. So um, s- sometimes I see wines that I carry at the Roy's also in Whole Foods, but by and large, I try to really focus on small producers, um, independent run, not part of big cl- conglomerate, you know. Um, yeah, family owned. So, 
as you travel down that path of like uh, trying to stock, you know, as a wine buyer, um, how, how do you compete with the, these stores? And like, you, I know you're trying to buy wines that are like more small producers, but then you have other wine stores down the street from you, and you're mm-hmm. also competing with grocery stores. Right. Um, are, are there wines that are exclusive just to you? And is that something that you? There's not. Yeah, no, it's the the wine business is not proprietary, right? We we're not. I mean, there are regulations. It's not. Um, it's not like one distributor can only say, "I'm going to sell this only to you know." I mean, retailers can or restaurants can say, "I'm going to buy up all the available inventory." So there's one way to kind of corner the market, right? But um, by and large, I think everything that I taste, Liz can also taste, and we can all make independent decisions as to whether or not to carry it at a restaurant or at you know the at at the shop. But yeah, stock is a bit limited. So one thing I've discovered coming into this market and being also a new, relatively new wine buyer and you know new to the business is um, Michigan is not as well known as a wine destination, right? For and even you know in, for in, Michigan wines or for no for a market, it's it. not. Yep. It isn't, it, I I don't think we consume as much wine. So if you're a small producer being represented by an importer, mm-hmm. you're going to allocate more to the bigger markets yep. like New York, LA, San Francisco, and then these other smaller markets don't get as much allocation. Mm-hmm. So which is why I thought I brought Cotier because it's interesting that. Winemakers also make personal decisions, right? She they make so few cases a year, yet they own they decided they're gonna sell to California and Michigan because of Mary's connection to Michigan. And I thought it was cool. So nowhere else can we find this wine but these two place these two states. So let's roll back for a second, and talk about the the kind of the genesis of the Royce. Why did you choose to come from New York? Why did you choose Detroit? Mm-hmm. So my business partner, um, Angela Rutherford and I, we moved from New York and she's actually from Michigan. Hmm. So um, I think we both saw an, an opportunity to essentially sell high, buy low. I mean, New York was already, so we left um, in 2015 and found, you know, started the Royce, um, but we launched in 2016. And even back then, it already felt overcrowded and busy. And I mean, New York has been on this growth mm-hmm. clip for the last how many decades right and every time i go back i'm astonished by how more crowded it feels and is so it's you know it, it was it's just bursting at the seams and i love new york you know it's still my favorite city in the world but now compare that to singapore because then when you talk about having like if you live in new york you're never going to eat in all the restaurants there's just there's right. not enough like days is that similar when you go to singapore um, not I guess pockets some, wise, right? Yeah. Not not in some categories, but okay. in in Asia, well, in Singapore, I haven't lived there since I was seventeen. Sure. Yeah, I literally left, you know, for college, right? And 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 every time I just go back to visit. So I prefer eating in local places mm-hmm. or eating at home. You know, when my grandmother was alive, just oh my gosh, yeah, eating all her, you know, her her, her home cooked meals. Mm-hmm. And my dad's a really good cook too. So as much as I can, I try to eat at home, but. If we do go out to eat in Singapore, yes, kind of the same thing, you know, especially with with the lower end day to day like street food, mm-hmm. what we call hawker centers. Yeah, there's so many different options, and oh, yeah, fun. it's hard to it's hard to hit check all the boxes, right? Right. When you opened the Royce, was what was the uh, kind of immediate response of people? Was it very, pretty positive? I think so. Yeah, I, I think one thing. Um, one thing I've been 
encouraged by. Um, people in Detroit are very open. So we're not, there are people who said, obviously, you know, we're not like, we have no TVs, we have no beer. We do get a lot of people coming in to ask for beer. But I think I've You're seen- You're close to Tiger Stadium. Right. Yep. And a lot of sports fans who bypass the Royce, right? Because we're not there. You know, destination. They they want beer and TV screens. But um, I've seen a lot of repeat customers, a lot of loyal customers. Um, I've seen growth in the business. So I would say, um, yeah, it's been it's been good. And are you doing stuff to like uh, reach out to people that might not know a lot about wine? So like classes or yeah. okay, Jason's well, of the world. <laughs> <laughs> so every, every every Wednesday we have free wine one. tasting. So five thirty seven p.m. Um, always three different wines. So tomorrow, for example, I'm working with one of our distributors mm-hmm. to bring three different wines from Burgundy. So French wines. Um, and last week it was um, Sean. Oh, last yo Sean was right two weeks ago or was that last week? That was, was last, last week. week. Yeah. yeah, Sean Sutton from Woodbury Wine. Yep. Um, and so you know. Three different, always, always three different types of wines, and people come. People who don't usually, I mean, they you know they make it a point to come, taste through the wines, and we give a, you know a, a free one ounce pour, and talk about the wine. And so it's a good time for people who don't know wine as much to learn about it, hear and taste at the same time. I think what's great about it is it's it's kind of separated from the bar, so you have a little spot to kind of talk and interact with the guests. You have a person that's dedicated to doing that for the tasting. So they're actually, it's someone who knows about it. They're knowledgeable. They're talking about the products. And it's, it's a little more immersive than like just going to a restaurant and being like, yeah, these ones are free. You can sample it, whatever. It, there's, there's a takeaway from it. It really feels like you're getting this little teeny tiny lesson on those three wines. So I've, I love it. Every time we've gone, and we've probably gone to 10 of them, it's, it's great. But that's great. Um, it's just so mm-hmm. great. I just floored you. I just <laughs> <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah. It's happening. Tomorrow. Yeah. Come tomorrow. What time? Four. Five thirty-seven. Yep. All right. I'm in it. I'm in. What's, and, yeah. what's going to be there tomorrow? Can, can I get a, oh, a sneak peek? So it's the three. So it's um, it's Burgundy. Pinot Noir yeah. Yeah. for the red. Well, starting from a sparkling, it's a it's a rosé sparkling, mm. and then there's a um. I'm rosé vodka or bust at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so, <just, laughs> <laughs> Couldn't tell. Okay. <laughs> Rosé, yep. but yeah. So it's three three French wines from from Burgundy. Uh, so there's no kitchen at the Royce, right? No. Nope. So you guys serve charcuterie, mm-hmm. um, like small plates type of like. Uh, Pretty much, yeah. Tinned, lots of fun tinned tin seafood. Fish. Yeah. Um, a few different, you know, cheeses, meats, um, cured meats, salami, sopressata, chorizo, jamon from Spain. Can you talk about the Fago and wine? Are you still doing that? The, which one? The 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 Fago and wine was it like the, oh the Calimocho? Yeah, yeah. No, we stopped that when it got cold. When it got so, okay, summer thing. Yeah. So and this was something that I had saw when I came in. I said, oh, it's like soda mixed with, uh, or I should say pop, pop right. mixed with um, wine. Right. Where, where, that's a that's a thing in Spain. Yeah, it's yeah very that's Spanish. A, okay. Yeah. What, hmm. what what is you were mixing Fago? You said I thought it was Fago. Was it red wine and cola? That's okay. what it is. So, oh, okay. yeah, and ice. Interesting. Yeah. It's something that you do. It's like your leftover wine in Spain. Like it's your next day wine, sort of like what you would use in sangria or something like that. Like, oh, okay. Because that's what I thought it was used for. So, but you can also mix it. Yeah. With... You can also mix it with like a cola. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Yeah. 
I had never heard of it. This, and yours, many is the first time I've seen it. So, so in China, they also drink Coca-Cola of wine. <laughs> That's the only other place I've encountered it. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so, so Ping, are you are you trained like uh, in wine, or are you is this like passion project or passion project? No, I am not. Unlike Liz, I'm not formally trained, but I basically keep you know. But you keep extensive notes, and I I learn from tasting. So I've tasted over three thousand wines <laughs> since starting the business, wow. and wow. I have a spreadsheet. Wait, since starting the business? Yeah. So it's we started like the business in. I mean, we launched in. August 2016 and probably start tasting in earnest four or five months before that. So yeah, I've been just keeping a catalog of database of wines and every day I Five wines. At You're least, close. yeah. It's like multiple wines a day. Yeah. yeah. It's impressive. <laughs> but she's, I mean, she's I'm, a lot more organized than I am. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Because <laughs> we, we literally come, I mean, distributors come to us, what? I mean, every day I, I'm like, hey, you want to, you know, you want to taste? And then how do you remember any mm-hmm. anything if you don't take notes, right? And yeah, I, I just find dig, digital copies are, because then I can just Google Doc it, mm-hmm. search by grape, varietal, distributor, country, everything. And wow. it helps a lot. So yeah. are you looking at lists of new wines coming into Michigan or are you going after wines that aren't in Michigan to try to get in? Like, do you have like a hit list? Like, how do you, how do you build, or you just wait for reps kind of thing? It's a combination. Okay. I've been trying to do more lean forward, like search out, wines that I like and you know being in a business for over a year now I've developed more of a you know my palate has changed right I'm a little bit more confident confident about what I like and what I know I can sell so there are wines that I do um, read about and then I identify which distributor carries it and if Michigan doesn't have a distributor what do you do that's a that's a problem and okay. this is one thing I've found where um a distributor might say, I don't have that allocation. Or if you want that wine, you have to commit to X number of cases. Mm-hmm. And as a shop, it's hard for us to do that because we have limited mm-hmm. storage. Now, if you know with Marrow, I'm hoping we'll have more turnover. And as a restaurant, probably have better buying power because you know the volume is higher. There's more, tu- you know, there's more turnover. I mean, Liz can probably comment on that, but at, at, at the Royce, it's just each time I buy a wine, it's it's in smaller quantities because, again, I'm buying every week. My storage is very limited and mm-hmm. people are not coming in to be like ordering it at a, you know, at a, at a dinner setting and like, the t- you know, so turnover is much, much smaller. Do, do you have to buy more? Like when you buy a wine, does it have to be by the case or can you buy by the bottle? You can buy by the bottle. You can buy. Is, is the know, price different? Yeah, a little, yeah. Bit, yeah. little bit. They do, you know, distributors do like split case fees and all mm-hmm. that. But yeah. Now, so I know like uh, Eli's in Birmingham, they'll, he'll import his own stuff. Is that just because that's Eli? Or is that, okay. Because <laughs> he'll be like, oh yeah, I'm the only one that has this case. It's really cool. Yeah, so, it's just right. Eli. He's okay. been in the business, what, over 30? Forever, yeah. Over 30 years, yeah. His his like sparkling selection is killer. I, I don't understand. why Why is he able to do that? Relationships. I, it, yeah, it must oh. be He must have buying power too, because I feel like his place is massive as well. Just like there's wine everywhere. Like you it's everywhere. <laughs> I've I've never been in his place. It's cool. And I and yeah. I um have always I've been meaning to, just haven't haven't gone in. It's right by my office, so I drive it by like every day. It's mm. very dangerous. Uh, how do you um with the limited space, uh how do you you have 
hundreds of bottles of wine for sale. Uh, how, how do you like, do that? Then? Is it all on the shelf? It's all on the shelf. It's all on the shelf. We have wow. some storage in the back, but typically each wine, and yeah, I have quite a few SKUs, different wines, but each wine at most out on the shelf, I carry you know between three to eight bottles, right? And that's it. And every wine has been tasted by you? Yes. And so how does how does the training work at your place in terms of like the, the other, you're not there all the time, obviously. We've had um, a little bit of turnover, not yeah. a ton. So, yeah. so how do you train the staff on like, you know, you give them like a, like a crash course in like your favorites or how does it work? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And it's an ongoing challenge or, you know, well, the, I think the beauty of the Royce's model, which isn't, that cannot happen in places like New York. I don't know about Chicago, but the blend of the hybrid model of bar and retail can only happen in certain states because every state has a different liquor, liquor you know, law, right? So here in Michigan, we can do retail and bar. So what's been really helpful is bar sales definitely drive retail sales. Mm. So at the Royce, we do, I change my bar menu every month. So like next week, I'm a whole new set of bar pours, like by the glass. Calendar month. Yeah. Okay. And so the, the staff tends to know those mm-hmm. 12 wines the best, right? They will then sell them on the floor. But then what is an ongoing thing is also I'm always bringing in new wines. About 40% of my, what I buy, 30 to 40% of what I buy every week is new wines that I've tasted because I want to keep the inventory fresh. So... What I do is when I'm at the Royce, which is um, at night, especially three to, you know, um, at least three, Wednesday to Fridays, I'm always there at night. I always try to open a wine that pe- that the staff is curious about. And mm. one thing I've, you know, I have a great team. They're always like, oh, let's, we call it sciencing. So they will science a bottle. They will pick and they will pay for it themselves. They split it and they will pay, pay you know, by themselves to try a wine that they are curious about. So it's constantly tasting and, you know, letting them taste as and when possible as well and talking about it. So, you know, with glass pours, I train them every month and, you know, like next week I'm going to talk about, all right, let's talk about some categories for selling on the floor. Mm-hmm. What are the wines that you can talk about and how, how, how can we talk about it? Is, is your list bigger? Is Liz's list bigger or is Ping's list bigger? Three hundred. Okay. Oh yeah. yeah. So it's it's definitely so. more daunting. So if you had to like train uh, an underling, or I guess the waiter waiters. Uh, yeah, I mean, it would I, be, that'd be a lot. It's well, especially because there's lots of um, different levels of development. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, moving forward, we're going to start doing some continued education classes, and I think. Um, you know, definitely sort of just starting from the bottom mm-hmm. and showing people how to taste and um, just putting things on people's radar. I mean, I, ta- I have organic conversations with my staff all night long on the floor. So they'll probably know glass pours too. So kind of similar to ping. They'll yeah, probably know glass, glass pours. pours I, I, you know, I always tell them like just at the very least to know the glass pours mm-hmm. and then we'll, you know, we'll take it from there. But I have about 27 of them right now. So that's a good um, list. Yeah, I think I think. The kids are on board and they're starting to get excited about wine, but it's those conversations like Ping said, you know, you're opening a bottle of wine and talking about it and, uh, you know, it's making people feel more um, comfortable with those conversations and, you know, it gives them more confidence about it. So do do you find that the uh, average consumer that comes into the Royce, uh, 
do they they know they're going to come in and drink wine, right? There's, I know you talked about baseball fans and how they're surprised there's no beer, but the vast majority of the people that walk through that door are ready to buy wine. Is that, is that true? Um, yeah. And people appreciate the fact that besides what we have on the glass poor menu, it's a library of wine, right? It's, it's a well laid out space. Wines are sitting out, um, it looks, and it looks a bit like a library. So people, you have the rolling ladders. Yeah. And the yep. rolling ladders and, Everything is laid out by body weight, so light, medium, full on on the you know walls of, of red. Same for the whites across varietal. So if you typically like a Cabernet, which is our most popular category, people always like full-bodied reds, right? We'll go to the end of the shelf, and all the cabs and full-bodied reds from Syrahs to Zinfandels blends are laid out kind of in the same vicinity, and then they get a pick. So that's how we kind of talk people through wines that they want to drink or steer them even away from what they typically drink, right? So it's like, oh, you like something full-bodied? How about trying this? Pinotage from South Africa. Have you ever had it? No. All right, try it. And and we found people to be very receptive as well. So picking off of the shelf at the Royce is also you know, a popular thing. And we we just charge a, you know, charge a corkage fee of $10, which... Imagine a bottle of wine that could be, especially for a nice bottle, right? If you're, say, a Barolo that's at retail price, we charge eighty five. At a restaurant, it might be three hundred. <laughs> yeah, significantly my more. Fee isn't ten dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, definitely a deal. So imagine that, right? So you're buying at retail price. You've char- charged an extra ten dollars. And then you can order, you know, meats and cheeses like you're at a restaurant mm-hmm. and sit down and be in a nice setting and you're getting a good deal. So so you keep – so we, we we're talking kind of dancing around like the, the whole restaurant thing and I, and I want to talk about um, marrow a, a little bit. And marrow is going to be a hybrid concept as well. So you have the Royce with being the retail shop and the bar mm-hmm. and marrow is going to be a butcher shop right. and a restaurant. Right. Which um, – I think outside of Dearborn Meat Market, uh, we don't really have that around here, right? So talk us e- through. E- no, but Italy doesn't do butchery, so yeah. What? Or eater, eatery. Eatory? Eatory doesn't yeah. do. Yeah, they don't do butchery, yeah. yeah. Um, Italy's in Chicago. And, uh, and New York. York. And New York. The big new place they're building in Italy. They're building one in Italy? Oh, yeah. They're oh, building wow. like a theme park in Italy. <laughs> um, so, okay. So talk us about. Talk Italy, us they've about got the, cinnamon bones, right? Yep. It's all cinnamon bones, <laughs> okay. yeah. The uh, the concept and um and how you came to like realize that you want to do a butcher yeah. shop slash restaurant. So I love meat, <laughs> but I don't eat it a lot. And and this is a whole thing which I think is very important about marrow, right? And um, is that well, one thing I I noticed when I came to Detroit was there are very few places to shop for food, and places to shop for good quality food. We all know Whole Foods, right? And it's a small Whole Foods. Coming from New York, bigger cities, it's like, wow, this is a tiny Whole Foods, right? Um, that's one. Then the biggest you know, supermarkets like Myers, and then I live in Southwest, so Honey Bee. But you know, I, I would go in and, and ask them, where's the chicken from? Where's the beef from? Or the pork from? They're like, no idea. So it came out of my observation, first of all. Like, I want better quality meat. And not necessarily every day. I don't have to eat it every day, but quality meat. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when I grew up in Singapore, my I would go with my grandmother to the you know the outdoor markets and um, wet markets. We call it wet markets, but it's essentially like you know outdoor markets, butcher, fishmonger, all that. And I remember asking her, I was like, why, why do you pick this one guy? Like this one butcher, this one fishmonger. How do you know? Like there are dozen of them. And she she would say to me, well, because he it's fresh. I know where he get, where he gets it from. He knows me. So he can, he will always recommend the best cuts. He's not going to cheat my money, right? So it stayed with me. And and then I read about um, April Bloomfield opening White Gold in New York. And she's one of my favorite chefs. I used to, you know, love going to Spotted Pig and Breslin when I was in New York. So when I read about her opening a butcher shop with a restaurant component, I was just blown. I was like, that's, a, that's such a cool concept. I w- would love to do it here. So um, I'm good friends with Greg Rayner, who's the chef at Cafe Muse. Mm. He had uh, um, secured a space in the West Village and announced that he was doing Geiger Eat, Shots, Eat, Eat Shop, right? which was inspired also by his grandparents owning a diner in Detroit decades ago. So one night we're having dinner and I told him about this, like, oh my God, did you read about April Bloomfield? I would love to do that. So I have this idea, you know, that would be so great for New York. I mean, Detroit. He texted me the next day and he said, let's do it. I'm not tied to Geiger. So that's how it all began. And I mean, the hybrid concept, I think, works here because Detroit needs amenities. Mm -hmm. I mean, just as the Royce was also born out of us recognizing that there's no, there wasn't a good wine shop and bar in downtown Detroit. Um, you know, West Village is a thriving community, lots of great houses, residential, mm-hmm. you know, it's on the way to Gross Point. I mean, it's, it's, I know a lot of people who live there and it's, you know, very nice houses, but yeah, again, not that many places to shop for food and very, yeah, not that many places to eat at good restaurants either. I mean, it's, Crawford is there, vegan souls there, but it's, it's you know it's it's a drop in a bucket, right? So, and even if you look at the the butcher on Woodward, what was it called? The yield, one that was by yield, yield? yeah, shop? yield, yeah, we're, we're, uh, yeah. no yeah. yield, and they um they tried, but they didn't have really the, that eating component. But I think they just didn't attract the people. So I think combined with the restaurant is kind of how you do that segue. Um, I also think people are demanding it too, because even going to like grocery stores are cutting back. They're not having the same cuts. Um, that's why, like, um, Ferndale Provisions is popping up, things like that. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think there's, it's a huge uh, niche that you can fill. And I think our motto is also, I mean, we're serious about sustainability. It's, it's about sourcing meat from um, within, a, we are saying within a 200-mile radius of Detroit. So it may come from Ohio, right? But we're still not trucking meat sources from far away or frozen or you know anything like that, like really supporting the local farming community as far as we can. Um, we're not a slaughterhouse. I mean, I've had people say, oh, they read the articles like, are you slaughtering meat at Marrow? It's like, no, no, no. We're, we're breaking down as much whole animals as we can. Logistically and space-wise, we're going to be a little constrained. But as much as we can, we're going to try to buy from the source and already processed meat that then can be broken down into cuts that will be, you know, sold or used in the restaurant. And the lack of waste is going to be a focus. So 
if a certain cut cannot be sold at the butcher shop, Sarah Welsh, um, who's my chef at Marrow, will be using it in the restaurant. So Sarah was a guest um, early on. What, like, you didn't invite me to that one. No, we didn't. Well, that, I think I was, tra- I was traveling. Yeah. Um, and, and Sarah, um, I, I, I work, used to work um, with Sarah at Pigstock up in Traverse City um, with uh, Mangalista pigs. And, mm. and, and um, so I, I know Sarah's kind of um, a dedication to, to sustainable uh, to sustainable meat and, and farming. Um, did, was she the was she like the easy choice to team up with here? She was, yeah. So it all came together, you know, fortuitously as well. Timing wise, she just left Republic. I just put together the the business model for Marrow. You know, couple, like a month after I, Greg and I had this moment of you know thinking about like, all right, let's do it. Let's do it in the West Village in your space. And I pulled together a business plan. And ran, I literally ran into Sarah in in a coffee shop. Heard that she was available, and I said, "You know, yeah." So yeah, I, I'm opening this restaurant. You know, I'm opening this restaurant. You have time. You know, just swing on by. <laughs> it's so funny how all this stuff is just like the right time, the kismet. Like you know, that's how some of this the the best stuff starts. I feel like just like happenstance. Yeah, and and it's um, I mean, and it makes perfect sense too, mm-hmm. right? Like there, there's a lot of like excitement about marrow opening mm-hmm. um and uh so you're you're planning on like june is that the hope yeah at this point our only road block well you know the um one of the unknowns is when can we get our building permits so we just finished our kitchen design sent it over to engineer so that he has a week and a half two weeks to get his you know, ducks in a row, and then we'll, the, the contractor is going to take it to building, the building department and then health department. So all those beyond our control, we're aiming for a late February build out. But yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged because it's been many months in the making and it's not easy to open. I mean, I've learned, right? Mm-hmm. Opening a restaurant is a lot of overheads, capital costs, all that. So what's the hardest part? Because I know like Prime and Proper took a little extra time too. Like what's the what's the holdup oh, yeah. typically? Is it the certifications? Is it the the blessing from the cities? Um, I mean there there was a lot of different factors for us. I mean, construction was the main main thing I think mm-hmm. for us. Yeah. Um, we definitely took a lot longer than we thought we were going to in terms of building that place out. You don't but rush you, it. I mean, it's but beautiful. you see yeah. it. It's yeah. it's like yeah, it's like you know all these beautiful tiles and gold silverware and right things like that. So I mean, it's not real gold, but you know it. The grill, the, the grill. grill. My Probably wine room training, is open now, right? I mean, yeah. did you spend? Was the training a factor with all of that stuff going on as well, or because of the weight with the construction that gave you the time to? Because no, I feel I, like after the townhouse thing, uh, and you know, I feel like that it's such a big focus to like have a project of this scale go off really well. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the training, we definitely had to keep pushing it back, which was a little bit frustrating, I'm sure, for some of our employees. But there were people that really kind of believed in what we were doing, and so they stayed on board. Um, the training itself ended up taking about two weeks. Okay. Um, but it was very extensive. I mean, we spent months and months writing those those manuals, and you know, we had an, a vision for what we wanted for our staff. So that was pretty in-depth. I don't know. That was probably the longest training process that I've seen in any restaurant that I've worked in. So, Uh, so so both both of you, um, 
you know, marrow and prime and proper, both shops that butcher cuts of meat. Are there additional certifications that have to come through, like in terms of uh, FDA licensing? Yeah, yeah, like FDA, USDA, yeah. anything. Um, Liz, do you guys sell um, cuts of meat out the door? I think that that's going to happen eventually. They're still sort of working on that, but that's that's the idea. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have some that we. I think people have taken some home before, but I mean, Walter's got a ton of meat down there, so. You know, so you guys are like straight up competitors then like you got to like make a little wall between you two. <laughs> no. I I think of prime and proper as or marrow as the polar opposite, right? Like mm-hmm. we're the cuz we're a neighborhood restaurant. Um all I think all meats has to be, you know, USDA approved anyway, but we're really going to focus on sustainable meats, so like mm-hmm. farm raised. So, you know, locally sourced and Farm-raised beef, for example, or like, you know, grass-fed, is tastes very different from mm-hmm. right. Corn. A, yeah, yeah. a lot of other, you know, pricey, pricier, tasty cuts of meat. But it's it's leaner, it's, you know, it has to be cooked in a different way as well. So that's what we're going after. And we're out, you know, we're the everyday, right. we're going to be the like everyday a, restaurant. That's like you can go out there every day during the week and just have a really nice little dinner in your neighborhood exactly. place. Where prime and proper is more of a destination place, so yeah. totally. special occasion. So we're well, not for the competitors. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it: we're not. We are not competing with each other. I mean, my my goal for Marrow is that we we you know someone can come three times a week and be perfectly happy and not feel like you know it's breaking the bank, right? Come for brunch. We'll have a really amazing brunch because we'll have a nice patio right beside Sister Pie. Which is fantastic, mm-hmm. and you know we we really um, want to help build out Kerchival as a real destination for people who want you know from meats, food to desserts afterwards. I, I mean, I see so many ways in which that neighborhood can be vibrant, more vibrant than it it already is. I mean, it's you know it's already a great neighborhood, um, but brunch for sure, right? And Come for you know beer and su- and bratwurst and wine and salami you know right charcuterie plate on a given night and then another night come for a full dinner, um, it, but it has to be a neighborhood restaurant that but but that still is you know provides an upscale comfortable environment but not alienating you know not like but welcoming for everyone. Will it be all meat? No. So Sarah's very um focus on also being vegetarian friendly so her menu you know i haven't she's still walking on it i mean mm-hmm. it's you know it's it's hard to plan a menu when it's a few months down the line because seasonality matters to mm-hmm. us right sure. so um but she's always said being it, we have to also cater to people who don't eat meat mm-hmm. even though they they will have to walk through the butcher shop so <laughs> <laughs> as long as they're comfortable with that so the butcher shop will be in the front front of the that restaurant. That will be the entrance. The way we've okay. designed it, it will be the entrance into the restaurant. And um, part of the design challenge has been how do we convert a daytime grocery um, space, right, where people are buying cuts to go um, into usable, monetize, monetizable space at night. Because every seat, as you guys know, is sure. revenue, yeah, right? right. So we don't want to waste any space to be able to and yeah be able to have people sitting, consuming at night, drinking. Are you, are you saying you're going to flip the butcher shop into like a usable space at night? 
It's going to be like a speakeasy. Well, the way we've designed it. Like a neat um, speakeasy. <laughs> the butcher shop is not going to take up. I mean, there's going to be a bar as well in the in the retail space. Okay. Yeah. So counter seating. Yeah. But then there will be a retail section in the back of that space. That at night, because it's a flat surface, you can still put mm-hmm. a glass of wine on it if you're waiting around to enter the dining room. So that's how we thought about it. It's a butcher shop with a bar. This is like my dream country. Yeah, it is. A, it it literally you is. You don't need anything else. <laughs> and what's the uh, what's the beverage program going to look like there? You have any ideas? Well, I'm without any uh, a bartender for it. <laughs> I'm not. I'm you not just auditioning. Yourself. I'm not you auditioning. Just yourself. No, I'm not. <laughs> I want to drink. I want to drink from them. We won't have. A, I mean, it'll be a full service restaurant. Okay. So cocktails, mm-hmm. um, beer, wine, everything. Um, and because we're a neighborhood as well, we want and you know the license that we get will enable carry out. So there will be some options to, Car- to wait. Hold on, carry out what? Like wine and beer. Cool. That's super cool. Because no one, no one is doing it in the West Village, right? I was going to so, say, yeah. does Brick? Because Bricks does not do. I don't believe they do. Okay. Yeah, and they're a small space. Just focus on you know yeah. the bar. So we've heard a lot of feedback from people who live in the neighborhood. Please have carry out options for us so yeah so we'll do that um cocktails for sure beer for sure i mean you know it has to be an an excellent drinks program Mm -hmm. so i'm talking to a few people to you know be on the team um i'm definitely going to be involved in programming the wine um i want it to be again like focus on sustainability so sustainable wines Natural wines has a bad rep, as Liz can t- <laughs> talk about in a in a separate podcast because she has in her third opinions. appearance. She'll <laughs> talk about it. That's a long conversation. It's a long, but I I love a lot of you know sustainably made wines, so called natural wines. But it's about you know buy that usually has to be organic, mostly biodynamic, and little extraction. I mean the 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 two wines that I brought today, and the second one is a. Uh, Pinot Nero, so it's a Pinot Noir from um, the the Piedmonti region in Italy. Mm. So one of my favorite producers, um, GD Vajra, they are they were the first organically certified um, producers in Piedmont. So they make really nice Barolos, and this is a Pinot Noir. So I thought, I mean, I you know, thinking about wine, I came to wine from Bur- like white Burgundy, right? And I love Pinot Noirs. And this is a little unusual because when people think about Pinot Noir, they think Oregon, right? French, California. So mm. it, Italy is not as common. And when I found this wine, I was like, wow. I, Yeah, and it's a cool producer. And it tastes very different. It tastes from, like Piedmont. Yeah. Earthy, a little, you know, fuller bodied. But I also sense kind of a meaty gaminess kind meaty of in the gamey. background. Yeah, not yeah. as much like cherry fruit. Right. So. It's good. Yeah. So th- this is also available at the Royce and sounds like it probably would make the list at Marrow too, yeah. right? <laughs> I, I, I'm a little obsessed with this winery. <laughs> but yeah, it, so I'm, I'm going to, I mean, there's a lot of work for me to do and I'm going to definitely pick Liz's brain if I can about how to design a wine list for a restaurant because it's very different from buying, a, buying wines for a shop. So I completely, you know, Acknowledge that up for the challenge, and I'm excited because you have to think about the food as well, and and 
but yeah, I, I'm gonna you know start with a point of view, focus on the same like smaller producers, sustainable wines, but things that wines that pair very well with food. So like acid, good acid mm-hmm. structure, good structure, yeah. yeah. All right, so we got wine shop that has a little bit of food. We have meat shop that has you know food as well. What's next? Is it like veggies? Is it cheese? What's you know twenty twenty? What's the next the next retail restaurant? Well, I'm thinking something offsite, something mm. something with a lot more space. Okay, because there's a lot of beautiful land outside of you know yeah in Michigan. So I mean, I I love Dan Barber's you know. You want like the Blue destination, like, like yeah. three Michelin star destination, like farm type the, thing. The, the vision of like Dan, mentioning Dan Barber is yeah. is pretty impressive. Not comparing myself. Oh I'm no, just no, saying, no, but, no, but the vision. So the vision. That's I mean, what I'm saying. In terms of because it's an it's, it'll be a good extension of marrow, right? Mm-hmm. If we manage to do something where it's it's farm based, you can cook or you can grow your produce to sustain your own mm-hmm. restaurant. And the restaurant in the city, but be a destination. And you know, Sarah um, Sarah Welsh has cooked at like outstanding in the field. You know, tw- well, she, well, yeah. Last year when they came, and I thought that was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of people like that experience of eating out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And but yeah, my first experience for that was Blue Hill Stone Barns. You could, you take a walk. You you know you're touring the walking around the farm and then you go into the restaurant and every single ingredient you know comes from what you just saw and it's fresh sustainably grown so that's you know i feel like the, michigan has a place for that there's so mm-hmm. much space around yeah. and when i went to outstanding the field last year there were people from ohio there were people who drove from chicago mm-hmm. so we're close enough to other states as well that people can I mean, we'll have you know enough interest, I think. Yeah, and we're very um, high ranked in terms of biodiversity. I think we're like right. second or third, right? Right, next to California. So that's another um, another kind of boon to that idea where people like that makes sense. We're an agrarian people. We're surrounded by water. There's farms all over the place. Yeah, yeah and Detroit yeah. has been Pure leading Michigan. the whole urban yeah. farming, you know, movement in yeah. in many ways. So. We'll definitely be looking to learn from a lot of people who have already done that right here. So Can we put a reservation yeah. in right now because I feel like it's gonna be busy. Oh, Nick, you're always you always have a seat at the table. <laughs> First you. one in. So, Ping, where can people uh, find out more about the Royce online? So we have a website, RoyceDetroit.com. Okay. And yeah. R O Y C E. R O Y C E Detroit.com. And then, if they want to follow you personally, you are at Pinkster. Pinkster and on Instagram. <laughs> P-I-N-G-S-T-E-R. Uh, Liz, of course, is this Somali at Prime and Proper, and that's primeandproperdetroit.com? Yeah, primeandproperdetroit.com. All right. And uh, your Instagram handle is? Wine Nomadic. Because <laughs> she's been all around. Because I've been all over <laughs> but this But she's here country, to stay. <laughs> but uh, now I'm in Detroit. Ping, great. Uh, good luck with Marrow. Thank you. Thanks for being with us tonight. Until next time, dine well, friends.